0: The <laughs> Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining me today on the Final Draft podcast. My name is Andrew Popel and today I'm welcoming to the show Gregory Day with his new book, The Bell of the World. And like normally I go straight into this little preamble and one of the things that I say is these are the stories that make us who we are. And one of the things that I really love about Greg's work is these are stories that, that really interrogate who we are. And The Bell of the World is no exception. Looking at a period in Australia's history and so many things like our literary culture and our our self-conception that really help us get to know ourselves a little bit better. So, look, I'm going to do the preamble now because the Final Draft podcast we do. We explore books, writing and literary culture and Final Draft broadcast from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We are dedicated to exploring Australian writing from debut authors to established authors, authors like Greg, whose works we know and love and who, when a new book drops, you get a little bit excited because these are the stories that make us who we are. Two SEL broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging these are unceded lands and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. As I said before, we're joined today by Gregory Day. His new book is called The Bell of the World. It is a period piece that explores a a very unique moment and a very unique set of characters. And I just cannot wait to share it. Join me as we discover Gregory Day's The Bell of the World. Greg, it's so great to have you here. Oh, it's really good to be here, Andrew. Thanks for asking me. Greg is a writer, a poet, a musician. His first novel, The Patron Saint of Eels, won the Australian Literature Society gold medal. His works include The Archipelago of Souls, The Grand Hotel, of course. You've met Greg before on Final Draft with his incredible novel, A Sound Archive, and he is back today with his latest, The Bell of the World. Welcome, and that, that conversation five years ago was, was such a standout for me. I really enjoyed it. When I, when I saw The Bell of the World was out, I thought, I, I have to read this. Um, and I confessed off air, I feel like I'm, I'm still chewing over your incredible story. I really, I really can't wait to see what comes of this interview um, because it's, yeah. it's one of those joyous books that it unfolds, um, which seems like a weird thing to say about paper. But I think the people who know will know what I mean by a f- story unfolding. Let me let me try and, and give a, a sense of the bell of the world, but then I might ask you as well. Yeah. Sarah Sarah Hutchinson arrives at Nangarhook adrift. She's floated from her boarding school days in England through continental Europe to arrive on the Bush property outside Geelong. At Nangahook, Sarah is surrounded by nature and soon begins to infuse her world in her poetry and through her music. Played on a post piano modified with elements plucked from the world around her, Sarah finds a sense of self. Not as apart from nature, but as a piece in its whole. Sarah and her uncle Fernie fashion Nangahook as their own paradise, but could it also be a bastion against the fast, encroaching modern world? So... As, as I read The Bell of the World, like the scope of Sarah's story had fascinated me. When I'm preparing for an interview, I always try to encapsulate the narrative in a short synopsis. I, I gave it to you just there. It's a way to introduce the show. It's, you know, the, the listeners need this. But it also, for me, it helps me get straight in my head what I think I've just read. I'm still not sure if I'm, uh, if I'm clear on the incredible scope of The Bell of the World. So I'm actually going to turn this now back on you. <laughs> I'm going to ask you, how do you encapsulate the novel in a few words?
1: Well, look, and it's always the case that when you're doing an interview about um, a novel, I find it's always the case that you, I always have a sense that I'm piling words on top of words. So without wanting to sound too purist or whatever, the words of the book are chosen carefully. There's lots of them, but they're chosen carefully and they're, and they're kind of deliberately done. So I can't do it in a few words, but basically this book comes from the book is uh, set in in history. It's set in 1910 and 1959, but it's very much coming from a place of urgency about where we are in the cultural landscape these days, particularly in relation to, <coughs> I suppose, the ecological crisis that I see as a kind of not only me, but a lot of people see as a direct result of of kind of a shift in culture that happened through the Enlightenment in Europe where basically we severed ourselves from nature, put nature in a glass case or in a laboratory as something to be observed objectively as if we weren't a part of it, as if we weren't connected to it, as if it wasn't in our guts, in our hair, and that we could kind of... Um, you know, anatomize it in that sense because we decided we were somehow superior and above it. So, I think it's pretty clear that that's a that's been a very on a practical level a very flawed philosophical swerve that's landed us in a great deal of shit in relation to our kind of balance with um, the Earth we're living on. So, that's really the source. Driving source for me of the book um, to try to imagine and there's a lot of dystopian literature around these days for good reason, but I had a sense of wanting to somehow write some counter to the dystopia and provide some kind of model for how we might exist and how we might kind of remove that grid that we've placed on top of the flowing line. So you know, um all my books are set in this part of the world. Um and it made sense to me to try to try to do it here and very much here in a deep dive, an immersive dive. And as you'll as you'll have already noticed, Andrew, it's quite a different style of book to a sand archive. Its theme is exactly the same, I think, but the approach, the strategy is about embodying, trying to embody in the style the content that I'm dealing with. Mm. So yeah, those layers
0: of, I mean, we don't even. I, I think I think people who would not uh, suggest to themselves that they're of a philosophical bent are still under the influence of what you call sort of you know centuries of learning mm. that have have separated us, have have elevated. Elevated man and, and sort of taken what they would probably think of as the uh, the Anthropocene to the apotheosis of of yeah. um, of creation. To strip all of that back is is going to be quite a task. So I want to take you to the very beginning of the of the book where um, Sarah is journeying to the destination we will ultimately you know come to know and love as Nangahook, the family property where she's she's going to live with her uncle Fernie. But she starts on a cabin with a local woman, and there she kind of goes through something of, for want of a better term, a mental break. she she very mm. much um she very much sort of almost has to sever herself from her past. Is that something of the philosophical turmoil? Is that something that maybe you see us all having to go through to really kind of slough off? a um, one way of looking
1: at the world? Well, look, potentially we're all at different states with this and we're all at different, um, in different relationships to it. We know Australia is a highly urbanised culture now, um, but that's not to say that cities aren't natural because, of course, Everything that is made and built on this earth comes from the earth, no matter how synthetic or built it seems. But the thing with Sarah is that she she comes from a messy, mixed-up kind of family, wealthy family, sends her to England. And in in England she really, and, and this is a kind of common experience for a lot of Australians, she understands something about who she is through the contrast of being in England, being away from where she's from. And what she has is a sense inside her being of the vast landscape she comes from. And this vast sense she has of herself internally, which is being cramped and crowded in by the English scale, if you like, is something that, when she comes back to Australia and comes back into the landscape to go and live with Fernie, she she basically has to achieve some kind of connection back to the landscape by, it's hard to talk about, um, as I said before, it's hard to re-describe, but the thing is, this vast landscape inside her, which has been cramped and twisted, Basically, she comes back into the landscape that is that vast space and she reconnects with it in a sense and becomes unified with it again and understands that she is not separate from it but a part of it. And what is inside for her in England becomes outside in Australia and she achieves a kind of unity, spiritual unity, with that landscape, with that sense, which is an ongoing thing. And um whether or not we all have to do that is is a moot question because everyone has different backgrounds and different psyches and so forth. But in this case, the book is very much about trying to talk about how the external world that we live in is not separate from the internal world that we're we're living in too. So she goes on to Um, as you said in the introduction, adjust the piano by bringing in bits from the landscape and fixing it to the strings of the piano to to augment the piano. And she does lots of things like this, which is about bringing the outside to the inside and bringing the the inside to the outside. So once again, it's just about reconnections and connecting up in the sense of uh, like nature's network, connecting up our individuality, as being part of and immersed in the natural world, rather than as separate from and governing it, that's a kind of pretty bad attempt at answering your question, Andrew. But no, that's yeah.
0: I mean, I feel like I said so. Is she basically purging years of philosophy? And I think you're. I think you clarified it actually a lot more um, even than I asked. I, I actually want to pick up the thread of of art that you've you've started there in a sec. Um, yeah, I would like to just sort of properly frame the the book, though. Yeah. And you mentioned before, um, 1910, and the bulk of the narrative transpiring in, I guess these these early years of the newly minted Federation. I think the Bell of the World would be a real eye opener for the average tourist taking the drive down to the Great Ocean Road these days, in its landscapes, in its people. Well, I don't know if, if in its people, but um, What was important about this time in Australia's history?
1: Wow. Um, Yeah, I mean, Australia is, um, perhaps with New Zealand, the first culture that really, within such a brief time after its, um, we're talking white Australia, colonial Australia, within a br- brief time after settlement it it basically entered the technological world it it entered international travel it entered the radio and movie and in this book the magic lantern show early technology comes through so australia is in a sense unlike say america which you know had 300 years of incubation time as a as a new settlement before all this international global village technology came in. Australia is um, a very a po- postmodern, if you like, culture par excellence in the sense that we are hybrids, collages of everything around us. And in that period around <coughs> federation, this is this kind of vainglorious attempt to unite this huge continent uh, behind this concept of, of Australia, we're already talking about a continent with over 300 languages on it or originally and ongoing. And and then you've got, <clears throat> so you've got all that going on and you've got this kind of, um, this campaign, this enlightenment project to create this new nation. So it's an intense time, I think. It must have been a very intense time in Australia. Um, and you know, it was preceded, immediately by the republican movement of the 1890s and so forth and a lot of that and, and some of that had some really great ideas behind it but as we know we still haven't achieved that republic so much you know over a hundred years later so the thing is never really knitted together in the way that these um original colonists wanted it to and there were a lot of presumptions of course as we know made about the place and the reading of the place and the hubris and the presumptions involved in wanting to take it over and make it this one nation is something that you know it hasn't worked and we're still coming to terms with it now so in those first years you know there were all kinds of ideas floating around because it was a new time and a new conception and so it was a very stimulating time culturally in some respects and it wasn't all stereotypical. As we look back at it, you know, as history, we we think we know it as one thing, but of course, if you burrow into it, there were lots and lots of things going on. But you know, as a new thing that that was taking place, and with its with its inherent racism and its and its, but it's also its kind of sense of the modern hmm. modernity. Um, it's a very, uh, a very interesting period of our history. Yeah, this is a complete, um,
0: a complete tangent. But as you were talking there about this idea of, you know, federation still in fact being incomplete, um, and our, um, yeah, our, our sense of being an independent nation. Like one of the early projects was, of course, you know, unifying the the gauges of the rails for the trains, just so that travel yeah. could happen. And it now it feels almost emblematic that every 10 to 20 years high-speed rail between cities comes up and we're just like, no, let's, we'll put that aside again because we just don't finish what we started.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like we are like the country, the culture and the way it has tried to kind of wrestle and sit or superimpose itself on top of the place is, I think, the reason why we st- we're we still not a republic. Mm. We still haven't come to terms with things. So we are a collage, a hybrid. And those first years, yeah, were um, particularly intense, I think. Mm.
0: You talked there about sort of the march of technology and how Australia, the Federated Nation of Australia, arrived at this, you know, and, and very quickly moved into this, as particularly a century of marching technology, it's then, I think, really interesting, the technology that is uh, the central conceit of the bell of the world, the the idea of the bell. And it sort of comes to represent this tension between Nangahook and all that Sarah and Fernie love about their natural world, their, their bell of the world, and the townsfolk um, and this seeming relentless civilising world. They want, or one in particular, um, so, when, so when Atchinson, he is looking Atch- he is looking for uh, a physical bell something that will peel out something that will uh, put these artificial markers of hours around the day that will be something for the people to look to uh, away from the wilds of their natural world I was also um, it recalled me to a sound archive we've already talked about uh, thematically the similarities and those layers of human influence that are always, being put on top of the world, layered on each other. Um,
1: yeah.
0: How um, how did you land on the conceit of the bell? It's
1: interesting, yeah. The the the, marram, the way the marum grass works in a sand archive could could be paralleled by the way the bell works in this. So it's a really uh, great perception there, Andrew. I think um, <clears throat> the bell. Well, actually, there's a there's a great book called Village Bells, which is by a French social historian called Alain Corbin. And it's the history of bells in the French landscape. And it's a fascinating book. He's a great historian. And years ago I was reading this book and reading about how important bells were within the French landscape. For instance, during the revolution, all the bells were confiscated. And uh, villagers got together and buried their village bell so they wouldn't be confiscated. And then after the revolution had failed, they dug the bell up again and put it back up on the tower. And it was a marker of time and space, um, like literally the boundary of the town. The village was when you couldn't hear the bell anymore. That meant you were outside the the, the town boundary at that point. So it was a marker of space, as we know, a marker of time and also a marker of kind of sacred practices and so forth. But in the part of the world where I live, um, in southwest Victoria, in the town where I live, there's never been a bell. Um, And I always was interested in the idea once I, I mean, I'm a musician, I love sound, and when I was reading the Alain Corban book, I, I, I was struck by the fact we don't have a bell in this town. We don't have a bell because for the same reason we don't have a Republic in a way, that we haven't been able to unite together on some way to ring a bell that everyone would agree to having rung. That's partly why. And it's also partly because it's just an ad hoc, um, jerry-built, impromptu kind of uh, place. But... What it's meant is that unlike, say, in Melbourne, where, you know, I spent a lot of time growing up as a kid, where the bells are rung and in my Irish and Italian background where bells are important, here the, the absence of the bell meant that I I began to see it like um, it's, it's allowing us the space and opportunity, literally sonically, to hear what's here without this grid, like I was talking about before, this structure being put upon it sonically. It's allowing us to hear what's here and to be here, without the superimpositions of a faraway religion or a faraway sense of time and space. And so I started to think about the possibilities of that. And in the novel, you know, there is a there is a push within the, this town back in nineteen ten to, in the fictional town, to have this bell put up to civilize a savage landscape. All these kind of conceptions, racist conceptions at the time, but also just an anxiety about creating a simulation of what people considered to be a proper town. And if you didn't have these markers of comportment and manners, then you were somehow kind of unmade and somehow amoral. And, of course, that comes from a deep insecurity, I think, and, and, a, and a, a lack of connection to what was already here. Sarah and Fernie um, are embracing what's already here and so decide that they, the the townsfolk come to them, come to the Hutchinson family because they've got lots of money and usually they come to them when they want something funded. Mm. So they come to Fernie and Sarah to fund (coughs) the bell. And much to their surprise, Fernie and Sarah say, no, we won't fund a bell. Mm. Why don't you listen to the bell that's already here, the bell of the world? And that creates this kind of conflict within the town, which sets Fernie and Sarah kind of up as outsiders, which they are already. They're artists. Fernie's gay. You know, there's all kinds of reasons why they're different from the town. But these reasons start to accumulate over the course of the book to the point where, you know, drama ensues. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: I want, to use, um, I want to use this idea of the bell of the world, Fernie and, and Sarah's conception of the bell of the world, that metaphor as perhaps a stepping stone to talk a little bit more about the art in the novel. Um, and I really want to, I, I, I confess to you off air that there would be moments in our conversation where I think oh, I'm going to learn something about what I think of this as I'm speaking because the art particularly is, is fascinating, it's expansive, I want to start... Perhaps with oh no, actually I'm gonna flip it around. See, this is I'm making this up as I go along, Greg. Um yeah. you, we've already talked about the augmented piano. Um Sarah takes found pieces of the world around her at Nangerhook, and with these found elements, she turns the piano into a different sonic beast. Um the pieces that she creates, they're they're I guess part of they're part ephemera, but they're also part representations of their world at Nangerhook. Yeah. And I wondered, I wondered about that, this idea of of art. And as you were speaking before, I thought of it even perhaps as a as a counter to the bell. The bell is an imposition onto the world, uh, the grid, <clears throat> the grid that you've been referring to, that is placed over the world to civilise it. Um, perhaps then is art a step into the world? Is it a way to understand the world as, on its own terms? And in thinking about that I guess that idea of creating art that is wild that is natural is it even possible or do we do we uh, or immediately start to adulterate nature the moment we we try to understand it in this way
1: Yeah well we're makers I think one of the mm-hmm. things that um distinguishes the human species is we are we are makers like other animals make things too but not to the extent that we do. I mean, look at what we've built. Like, this is what we do. We we make things, right down to the point of making clothes to wear. Um, So culture is always transforming its ingredients, Mm. and that is definitely the case, and that's one of the realisations Sarah comes to at the end. But, you know, not without wanting to give away the end of the book, the transformations that occur... Um, in culture, in art, for instance, are uh, as much transformations of how we see things mm. as they are of things. So, for instance, famously, John Cage, the American composer, made a piece of music in 1952 called Four Minutes and 33, in which he basically framed four minutes and 33 seconds of silence in three movements. He scored the piece. And this was seven years after the Adam Bomb had gone off. So if you like, the loudest noise in the world had been made seven years previous to that. We know what happened with the world wars. And his response as a musician was to frame silence. So if you go on the internet, you go on YouTube and you can look at performances of this very famous piece of music now, 4 Minutes 33, being performed at the Barbican Theatre in London with a full orchestra and all the rest of it. They get up there, all the pomp and ceremony that surrounds a normal orchestral performance, and then nothing happens. Mm. But something does happen. This is the whole point and kind of magic of that piece of music, is that art is a way of seeing and it's a way of being either in close proximity to the the local world we're in or as a way of remixing the ingredients that we're living amongst and so in the novel i think what's happening is and the novel does this itself but sarah is once again trying to come up with a solution the connection that's happened for her this mental breakdown or whatever you want to call it and then this this healing that happens to her where the big vast internal soul of her is then made to connect and mirror with the big vast landscape around her so the inside is becoming outside outside is becoming inside she wants to make a, a she wants to make art that does that as well mm. art that is properly from here art that listens to the place that we're in listens to the voices listens to and then you know transforms it into a celebration of here rather than a silencing (coughs) Mm. yeah so it's inevitable that we're makers and and as she comes to the conclusion the world is fabricated by design so this is about um this isn't about silencing all culture this is about connecting in a in a deep way to earth art if you like I was enjoying your
0: conception of us as makers there, and and that impulse within us. And I've actually been thinking lately uh, about art and and wondering because, of course, when we make, we we have enormous potential to be destructive. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, so so often, so often in this crowded, crowded world, making mm-hmm. is necess- It necessitates destruction. Something has to be torn down so that something can be can be built up. And I've been yeah. wondering to myself if maybe there is there is an evolutionary purpose to art, in that it it actually channels our our innate maker in a way that is not inherently destructive, and and perhaps oh. we all need we all need a little bit more of the artist and a little bit less of the um the
1: the builder in us. Yeah, no, that's a great way of seeing it. I think. I mean, I think that that's right. The, the, the arc, the line, if you like, from the craftsperson or tradesperson to the artist is a line of artisanal activity. So the the tradesperson is involved with craft and artisanal activity and so is the artist. But as you say, what makes art art as opposed to maybe it is that. Maybe it's that what you're saying, Andrew. It's this self-reflexive, highly conscious um, understanding of the effect of our making on the world yeah can't wait for the headlines breaking news
0: (laughs) community radio host suggests the luddites were onto something smashing those looms um i'm constantly breaking news continuing with this idea of art fernie Uncle Fernie, he is smitten. We haven't actually I don't I feel like we haven't properly characterized Sarah and Uncle Fernie because they are, despite the um the titles of their relationship, they're only about ten years apart. Uh, which would I I mean, by my reckoning, so Sarah is, is in her mid twenties, so Fernie's only in his
1: mid thirties, is that about right? <clears throat> yeah, in, in the nineteen ten section, yeah, I think that's roughly their ages, mm-hmm. yeah. So we have we have people that
0: are they are young they are vibrant they are they 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 want to create something with their world and they're I think quite idealistic about it and Fernie yep. is absolutely smitten with the novel Such Is Life uh, it's a 1903 novel from Joseph Furphy the book is something of a talisman for him um, and I'm very I'm very interested in the role the book plays in his life and in Australian literary history but I was also entranced. <laughs> By just the journey of the book in the novel, um, I don't. Yeah. Is, it, is it giving? Is it giving too much away, Greg, to to actually talk about what happens to the
1: book? I'm not sure. Well, I don't think it is actually because it's it's it's. Um, we've actually it's on the flyleaf of the book. We actually give it away because it is not the it's not the core. It's kind of like a um, uh, it's a subplot in a way. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that <laughs> Bernie has this. Novel, which is a you know amazing proto-modernist Australian novel from 1903, um, such is life about um, bullock drivers in the Riverina in the 1880s. It's a very experimental book, full of incredible diversity of voices and so forth. Um, which you know, various people have loved for many years. It's held in the highest regard by by a lot of people who are held in the highest regard but it's virtually unread these days in Australia mm. it's a bit like it's a bit like the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy in a way something like that mm. anyway it's a very funny book it's a very sonic book anyway Fernie's obsessed with this book and um it embodies so much of what he is it embodies so much of the landscape he's from, but it also embodies the avant-garde, the experimental and all these things. So he's a well-travelled man, Fern. He spends a lot of time overseas in Europe in all kinds of coteries and he always kind of delights in bringing out this book in the most highfalutin European kind of salons and reading from this very raucous, striny and strange book from Australia to shock people. Anyway, he's carried it with him all around the world and um he has it on the farm he has it in his pocket in his farm coat when he's on the farm but anyway it's falling apart because it's so well traveled the bindings all coming together uh, falling apart so he decides that he has to get it fixed and take it to a book binder which he does he takes it to a book binder on the outskirts of geelong in a in a marsh called moolap and this bookbinder agrees to the task of rebinding this book such as life so that's all very well, but then when Fernie comes back with Sarah to get the book, quite a long time later, a few months later, the bookbinder's taken his time, he turns up and it has, and he looks in the window of the bookbinder's building and sees his book, but it's twice as thick as it was when he, when he let, dropped it off. And as it turns out, this bookbinder of Moolap has, in the intervening period, been on the docks in Geelong and met a, an American sailor off a boat who also had a favourite book, and his favourite book was the book Moby Dick. Very famous, a book, famous book now, but in 1910 that book wasn't famous at all. It was it was written in, published in 1851, but when Herman Melville, its author, died in the 1890s, it still hadn't um, sold out its 3,000 print run. In fact, half of those 3,000 had burnt in a warehouse fire and it was a real failure, this book and it didn't become the great American novel until after the First World War. Anyway, this American sailor that the bookbinder meets on the dock in Geelong has a copy of the book because he's from the same part of the world, New England that the book was written in and he shows it to the bookbinder who becomes interested in it borrows it from him, reads it and it strikes him when he reads it that this book set amongst (coughs) whalers On this whaling boat on the ocean was, in a sense, a companion book to the book set amongst bullockies in the landscape of Australia, and he decides that if you put these two book together, books together, the ocean and the land would come together, and you would have the book of the world. And so, this bookbinder is a frustrated writer. He, he's he's not of the class. Originally, he's from England. He's not of the class which most writers are from. Most writers back in those days were from the landed classes. I think maybe Thomas Hardy was the only exception. And so he decides he's got this repressed or frustrated creativity, so he decides to, in the manner of a kind of unconsciously avant-garde move, he decides to basically put these two books together. So he unstitches Fernie's Such as Life and he composes a new book which interleaves chapters from Moby Dick with chapters from Such Is Life, binds it all back together in this huge volume, which is a very strange and surreal object, but has its own creative logic. Mm. But Fernie gets a great shock when he comes back and realises that his beloved book has become a completely different thing. And so it's it's a a kind of metaphor, if you like, for the hybridity of contemporary world, post-colonial world, And it talks about connections between Australia and America and it's also a comic,
0: yeah. It's very funny, but it also, the creative process was what really drew me here. And I guess if we think contemporaneous to the novel, this bookbinder is perhaps anticipating the Dardists. But for me, what really landed was this is a remix. This is, he's... This is a man who is sampling and remixing yeah. art. Yeah. And yeah. I mean if we think come back to that idea of of the maker, this is also yeah. a very sustainable way of making because we are yeah. not taking we are not taking raw material, we are actually discovering what we are, within what we already have and it fascinated me.
1: Oh, that's that's a, I'm really glad you've read it that way because that's exactly how it was intended. It's compost. Culture is compost. We make new things out of old things. And that's exactly as Sarah has done with the piano. She ends up doing something with the piano that famously only happens officially in avant-garde circles well after she did it. Mm-hmm. Likewise, the bookbinder in Moorlap has done something which, Likewise, becomes known for its sampling, remixing, um, hybridity, and these are the kind of things that can happen in a backwater. You know, where people don't aren't aware of con- those cultural conventions necessarily to the extent that would stop them from openness and experimenting with these things. So yeah, it's a it's a composted ultra novel, yeah. this uh, Bullock whale book. Yeah, I am. I, I am
0: almost about to go down a really weird tangent about incredible Australian bands that emerge from towns like, well, I'll pick on Geelong because you're very close to Geelong or places yeah. like the Blue Mountains where I am. And uh, yeah. yeah, the ways, the ways culture almost has to rise up against the idea that there might not be any
1: culture in these places. Yeah, that's it. That's right. That's the other aspect of it. And that's the presump that's part of the thing the book's doing. And my, a book of mine, like The Grand Hotel, was doing this too. You know, it's it's kind of marrying, it's juxtapositions, putting things together that people typically mightn't think go together, but there is a, an inherent logic that puts them together. For instance, in The Grand Hotel, I put Dada together with Bush, Australian Bush culture. Now, what these, ha- what are these high European avant-garde movement and this backwater kind of, you know, corks hanging from the hat bush Australian culture. What do these two things have in common? Well, what they do have is fierce independence. That's one thing they have in common. And that breeds a kind of affinity. And, again, in the bell of the world, that's the thing. Like, rather than ring the conventional bell at the conventional time and to create the conventional space, I'm trying to say, well, I'm not only trying to say, I'm trying to show what's happened and and that there is space and room and and an opportunity in this place to do things potentially in a way that's more in harmony with with um, the natural juxtapositions in in the world mm. yeah
0: indulge me for a second here please Greg because um, in the spirit of the art that we are discussing, I am going yeah. to um, show yourself and, and maybe uh, give the listener a little bit of an insight into how the sausage is made. Terrible, and terrible, terrible metaphor there. Sure. But um, I, have a, I have a question that I want to ask, but in light of what we've already discussed, I have to remix it in my head. We talked before a little bit uh, more about the characters of Fernie and of Sarah and <clears throat> how they are artists. They are very avant-garde um, in the in the eyes of the townsfolk, and we have this growing unrest around the idea of the bell. The town wants a bell. The town wants this symbol and layer of culture over it. I felt like while the bell is the focal point, it also comes to express something of the townsfolk's uncertainty, how they feel about what uh, we might describe in scare quotes as Sarah Fernie and their their new resident Joe's unconventional living arrangements. Uh, it was probably how they might characterise it at the time. The fact that, uh, that Fernie is gay, the fact that there is a sort of a love triangle of um, living arrangements at Nangerhook, was there something, and does this connect to this idea of um, Australia, the the concept of Australia, the federation of Australia as a sort of an unfinished project? This idea of the, it's a proto culture war that you're depicting there, and the fact that we still seem at odds with ourselves is because we haven't been able to resolve any of these tensions for some hundred and twenty plus years, not not discounting the 250 years overlaid on 60,000 years. There's a lot of numbers here.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, (laughs) I mean, we, I think perhaps we're getting somewhere in recent times. There's a sense of that. Um, but, I mean, just the idea that we're we're still here, and we haven't become a republic, mm. and that we all sat—well, I didn't, but a lot of people sat down in front of that weird coronation, which is has this association to this place, which it, it just feels so—it's um, it, disappointing. I think that at this point in time, we're still we still haven't done anything that needs to be done Mm. for a mature person to live in the world. If you, if you considered the culture as a person, has it grown up, you know, Mm. um, it's, it feels like now we're in some adolescent stage still. So um, that's quite strange. I think it's quite strange, but you know, there's historical reasons for it, of course there's been big interruptions in terms of wars and all kinds of things. And of course, because the culture was settled as a convict colony originally, there's, there's just a kind of maybe a built-in anti, a a kind of, um, a built-in skepticism about any structure, whether it be a Republic or whether it be a monarchy, I don't know, but, um, I have a sense um, now that there is perhaps an opportunity as we begin to listen more Mm. to where we are, that there is possibly an opportunity for for us to finally grow up. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I mean, that's a a big... Big topic yeah. and I'm I mean, I, I'm not a politician nor am I a cultural theorist. You know, I'm a kind of maker of books and music, so yeah. Well perhaps to
0: perhaps to extend the metaphor of the bell, we have Fernie and Sarah resisting the bell and its influence on the region because it sounds a single note. And yeah. and they are living representations that there are many notes that make up, I guess, the the wider cultural symphony. They they will not, you know, march to a single note. And perhaps, perhaps if the last 120 years have done anything, it's that we've been able to sound more notes. We've been able to build up something of, I'm stretching the metaphor here, but something <laughs> of a symphony, yeah, well, something of a song, if not a symphony.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, I... I I think that's – this is the other thing about this book. Music is so big in this book. Mm. And it's not necessarily – it's this idea that the world is made of music, the world is made of sound, and that anything you hear is music or can be music if you hear it that way. And I've kind of – when we talk about human beings as being makers, one of the greatest examples of human beings being makers, if you sit down in front of a, a, an orchestra – and watch and listen to a symphony being played, I don't know, Sibelius or Beethoven or whatever it is, and you think each one of those instruments is a piece of craft work. It's an artisanal instrument made from reeds, wood, brass, everything from the earth, all composed in this incredible community unison to make this, this music. And so there's heaps of ironies in about Um, the attitude in the bell of the world, because you're dealing with this, this kind of tension, as you were saying before, between does art destroy as it makes? Well, yes, it does. But what the book's kind of trying to sing about is the fact that we are in a world where the hubris of the human is always at the center of the story. You know, the human being always has to be the centre of the story. This is a book which is attempting, as you say, to take that single note, which is the human, out of it and see a more horizontal landscape without a central focus. So the background becomes the foreground Mm. and the foreground becomes the background. And there's a kind of, um, dare I say it, a kind of communality in this chorus that is in the landscape around Sarah which she tunes into very early on and which I think is strongly, there's strong currents of this in our culture now because of climate change and so forth, we have to come back to the connections that we can't do without. And, of course, the last section of the book is all about mushrooms and fungi and the interconnectedness of what is called the wood wide web under the earth as a great metaphor for this Non-vertical, non-more-than-human um, network which we're part of.
0: Greg, I think I could, um, I could probably have you on the on the phone all day, and I would probably start <laughs> pulling out individual page references. But I'm also clever enough, I think, as an interviewer, to know a really wonderful point at which to say thank you very much. And I think that communality is it. I'm speaking with Gregory Day. His new novel is The Bell of the World. And I hope this conversation has given you, dear listener, just a sense of the scope that invites you between its pages. Thank you so much, Greg.
1: Thanks a lot, Andrew. It's been great to chat again.
0: Thank you, dear listener, for joining me today. And thank you again to Greg. Gregory Day's new novel is The Bell of the World. Now, Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You can find us through 2SER.com. You can find us on the social media. We are at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app. It means new episodes all the time, more than once a week so much variety. I love sharing books with you. Thank you all so very, very much. My name is Andrew Popel. I am going to be back with more great conversations with this incredible Australian authors. But till next time, happy reading. Bye for now.